These are both the wrong bulletins. Here's a good one. I got one. Yay. Sorry. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32.5. Number two there uh, regarding uh, resuming the um, evening study. We are going to cancel for this evening. So no evening service this evening. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, Andrea's number. Thank you for your giving. Um, let me see. The, um, as you all know, the, um, the event for last night was uh, canceled or postponed, I think it is. Um, so um, we'll deal with that. I'm still on the wrong, am I still on the wrong bulletin? Okay. All right. Uh, if you haven't taken your uh, offering envelope, you're super late. So get that done and take the same number as you had last year. 
and that'll be great. All right. Um, it seems like somebody said to announce something else, and now I'm, I got so uh, discombobulated up here, I can't remember what it was. If you said something to me, remind me. <laughs> I, 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 think it was, I think it was canceling the service tonight. So anyways, um, let's move on to Scripture for meditation. Let's read Psalm 51. Let's stand together and open our service up here. Dale, I'm going to pick on you. Can you remember mercy again today? Our gracious God, we thank you for this day, Lord, a nice white winter snowy day that you brought us out to church. I thank you that you brought many of us out. I pray that uh, 
would be with the ones that weren't able to come for whatever reason. Ask that you would strengthen Pastor in the message as he as he brings the message to us, and that you would uh, open our our hearing and our thoughts, and that we would uh, that we would um, comprehend what he's talking about today, and and learn more of your word. <clears throat> Dear Lord, many of us, are, many of the church family is sick. We especially think of Mercy this morning with having a grandma seizure, I think. And just be with Mercy, we pray. Be with Dan and Jess and keep them strong during their, their, uh, their troubles with that. And um, be with uh, many of our other people that are hurting for so many other reasons. Lord, you know who they are. Just pray that you would be with them, strengthen them, and bring them closer to the cross. Thank you for this day, Lord, and that you brought us out. Be with us on our way home. Keep, keep our congregation safe with it's your will. Amen. Amen. Take your brown hymnal and turn to number 347. 347 in the brown. And while you're turning, I'd like to apologize for those of you who made it here last week without a phone call. I'm very sorry. Something in our our uh, phone call system, it got a little bit awry, and I'm sorry. There were several people who made it here, and I'm so sorry. It will hopefully not happen if we have to cancel again. But again, my apologies. 347 in the brown.
a favorite hymn this morning. <laughs> okay, Naomi. Three, four, eight, in the brown, right next door, the next page over. Okay, hiding in D. Do you have a reason this morning? Uh, yes, I do. It's hiding in D. It's because um, it's saying, it's, it's kind of hard to explain why I picked this in. So the first said, um, um, it says, the blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in D. It's a really good song, and I have it stuck in my head, and there's a lot of reasons. Okay, cool. It's a good song. We'll leave it at that. Thank you.
Our scripture reading is Psalm 32. You certainly can. I don't project enough. It's a small room. Let's stand together. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in those spirit in whose spirit rather is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped, and in the heat of the summer, when I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. The sorrow and you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many of the woes of the wicked, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Take your red hymnal this time and turn to number 500. 500 in the Trinity red hymnal.
Thank you. You may be seated. Our scripture text this morning is Psalm 32, Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is one of two psalms that David wrote dealing with his confession of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and so they complement each other. But here we have in the Holy Scriptures before us the testimony, the confession, the repentance of King David with regard to that great sin that brought heartache not only to his own family but to uh, the whole country of Israel which he represented. You remember as a result of his sin with her, the child that was conceived in the illicit relationship died and the kingdom of David was uh, split after his death, but nonetheless it was prophesied before his death. And after his death it was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, all as a result of uh, his violation of the sanctity of marriage and the violation of God's law concerning that. It's a very um, testimony uh, that should reach to our own hearts concerning how seriously God takes uh, such things as our contracts and especially marriage contract with one another and how the Lord uh, supersedes that. So in our last study, we considered some of the wrong ways that people handle guilt Number one, denial. Oh, no, I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) They deny that God and his laws exist or that they don't apply. I'm not accountable. Uh, We talked about why denial is not valid. Secondly, rationalization. Denial is one way we deal with guilt. Rationalization is another way. Rationalization means that we pass the blame for our sin to another, or we minimize our sin because of mitigating circumstances. We say things like, well, I didn't know, well, I was deceived, well, they tricked me, almost anything to dull the pain of an accusatory conscience. None of it holds water with God. We are responsible. A third way we deal with guilt is through performance. And I mean by that that because a human law makes provision for restitution... We think God will let us pay off our debt to him in the same way. But you know what? It's an insurmountable debt. You can't pay it off. God has to forgive the debt, which is exactly 
his solution, not ours. We wouldn't have taken that, but it is his solution because it's the only solution. He can't be lenient, so he pays for the sin in the person of his voluntary sacrificial son. Jesus says, I'll pay for it. And because he was perfect, sinless, his payment is more than adequate. So God's solution is mercy to us through accepting the voluntary payment of his perfect son. Sin is dealt with. It's not swept under the carpet. And it cannot come back to condemn you or me again. It's one thing the world religions don't understand. It's why they're always offering sacrifices always trying to pay, pay, pay. They understand that whatever they did last week, last month, whatever, is insufficient to cover the mountain of sin. But in Christ, when he said from the cross, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. And the idea, of course, in the gospel is, do you believe it? Will you accept that? And we as Christians do. Now, today, we want to talk in, in a little more detail about this whole idea of God's remedy for guilt, his remedy for guilt. As we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, send your word to us by way of the Spirit. Because it's the spirit that's the interpreter of the word. It's his sword. So if he will strike away at us and cut out our indifference and, and our excuses and all the other things we bring up, we will be blessed in the end and you will be glorified. I pray that that will be the case. We want to be free of our sin. We want to be free of the consequences of our sin. You know, that's never going to happen so long as we... Uh, are not willing to admit it and confess it and repent of it. So, Lord, we're talking about your remedy for guilt. We pray that you will help us understand it and to apply it and to believe it. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at God's remedy for guilt. And we have here in Romans 3, in verse 20, Paul stating, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So the law isn't going to save us. It's going to condemn us. And John writes in 1 John 3 verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's the breaking of God's law. Now, I pointed out last week that one does not have to possess the Bible to discover what God's law requires of us. Why is that? Because God has written his moral code in the hearts of the most wicked pagan in the most backward country in the world, so that all men, without exception, know right from wrong. 
They know right from wrong. And because God's law is everywhere, it's either codified, you got a Bible in front of you, or it's stamped upon the conscience, if you don't have a Bible. Because that is so, when there is a breach of God's law, guilt is the result. You feel guilty because you are guilty. And this is what Paul means when he says, through the law we become conscious of sin. Romans 3 verse 20. He's saying we wake up to our position, our spiritual position. And you know, it's not always pleasant to wake up. But it's always beneficial. Again, Paul writing says, Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper! Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then, very careful then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, verse 13 and following. So it's a great mercy of God to disturb our spiritual sleep. It is His grace coming your way for God to wake you up. A guilty conscience as a lawbreaker is your wake-up call. Those undisturbed by their sin, and there are lots of people like this, they're undisturbed by their sin, they will sleep away the day of grace and in a spiritual coma, They will sleep their way all the way to hell because their conscience is not awake to the magnitude of their sin and the consequences of it. Again, Paul writing, this time to the Thessalonian church, writes these words, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert, self-controlled, For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Notice how he's making the comparison there. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and following. How can anyone be so at peace as a lawbreaker before God as to be unconcerned, undisturbed about his or her eternal destiny? Yet Paul talks about that. Unless we wake up, unless we do something about it, nature will take its course. And what is nature's course? We don't have to guess. Paul writes, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. The mind of sinful man is death, 
But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law, cannot do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. So, you want to live by your nature. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to live your whole life with a fist in the face of God and the consequences of that. You need to wake up to this reality. You don't want to please God. Worse, you can't please God. I can't please God. His law is too high for us. It's too good for us. Paul was a Pharisee. I mean, think about this. What's a Pharisee? He was a seminary-trained theological student. He studied the law of God. He knew it so well that as a rabbi, he could teach others. It made him proud. It made him arrogant. That's what it did for him. And he believed that he did God a great service by persecuting Christians. That's how screwed up in his head he was. Like all of the rest of the people, he was asleep to his own lawlessness. But God woke him up. And God used the law to do it. Let me read his testimony. It's in the scripture. I'm glad it's in there. This is him speaking. He says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But it did say that, you understand. So he goes on. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the command produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once, I was alive apart from the law. What's he saying? He says, I was just doing fine. I was. I was just kind of coasting along. I didn't have a care in the world. I taught God's word to others. And I was convinced that they could do no better than having a teacher as perfect as me. (laughs) That was Paul. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. In other words, he was awakened to his sin. And I died. I found, he's going on to say, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. Romans 7, 
verse 7 and following. I mean, just think about this. He says, I'm sailing along really cool. I'm teaching others the word of God. I'm going through the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Yeah, that's me. No adultery. Yeah, that's me. Perfect in my relationship with others. Do not steal. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I'm not stealing. He gets through all nine of the commandments and he comes to commandment number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Covet? Whoa. It was like a dagger in his heart because he was a man full of covetousness. He wasn't happy with anything. He wanted it all. He wanted more. He, won, he was greedy for whatever the world could supply in terms of fame and power and position and authority and the accolades of men and on and on and on. The law was spiritual, but he says, I'm, I was unspiritual. I thought I was this hot shot Pharisee, religious teacher, but I wasn't spiritual at all. Conviction of sin, guilt feelings because of sin is God's wake up call to you and to me that something deadly is at work in our souls. A cancer is there eating at our vitals. And unless it is dealt with in the most severe terms, it'll kill you. It will. God's broken law makes for guilt. And that's good. If you, if, I'm, I'm saying it's good if you don't try to deny it, if you don't try to hide it. Praise God, he's after you. Praise him for nailing your foot to the floor so you can't run and hide. The law's after you. It's like... <coughs> Bunyan calls it the hound that you can't get away from. It's nipping at your heels all the time. And it's good for the law to have this convicting work in your life. Why is it good? It means that your conscience is alive and active. Do you know how many people can sin every day and they do sin every day and they do some pretty wicked things every day and it doesn't bother them at all not ever not now not tomorrow not a year from now whatever and they can be involved in the most horrendous of sins and they're just fine with it the way it is they're not awake to the consequences secondly unresolved guilt paralyzes initially and but it will kill you eventually and say it again Unresolved guilt paralyzes initially and kills eventually. When David allowed his lustful look at Bathsheba to go unchecked as she took her evening bath in front of an unscreened window, he burned in his heart for her. He just had to sleep with her. And so he commanded his men, his servants, to fetch her. Now, she was a married woman. 
married to one of David's noble soldiers, a good man, an honorable man named Uriah. Uriah's name means Jehovah is my light. That's what his name means. Jehovah is my fire. And Uriah was a man on fire for God, willing to serve both God and king in any righteous way that he could do so. So when Bathsheba became pregnant with David's child, he embarked on an elaborate scheme to bring Uriah home from the front line with the intent that Uriah would make love to Bathsheba so that the love child in her womb would be thought of as being Uriah's child, not David's child. But you all know that David's wicked plan was foiled quite unintentionally and quite innocently because Uriah could not bring himself to sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were deprived of their wives out in the battlefield. So he wouldn't do it. So David added wicked to wicked. He added murder to adultery and even had the audacity to pen an order to his commanding general and send it using Uriah himself as the courier which ordered David's general to place Uriah in the thick of the battle where he would likely be killed. And he was. Honorable Uriah never took a peek at the note. Uriah, the man of integrity, carried his own death warrant to the field marshal who did as King David had commanded. Uriah was put in the thick of the battle, and as battles go, he became a casualty of war. Now, for a very long time, David believed that he had gotten away with these two monstrous transgressions of God's law, adultery and murder. But during that time, his conscience gave him no peace. He says so in our text. Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He became restless. In the daytime aches and pains made him groan. At nighttime he couldn't sleep. Oh, the weather was just fine. But his strength and his vitality was sapped as though the mugginess of high humidity were just suffocating him. What was wrong? Verse 5. He talks about the guilt of his sin. He was paralyzed with guilt. He could not shake himself loose from his sin. The scripture tells us that he made a home for Bathsheba in her pregnancy. He married her. He acknowledged her son as his son. But there was no joy in any of this. Nathan, the prophet, 
brought a stiff indictment (coughs) against him, saying, You are the man. You did this. You killed Uriah to steal his wife and cover up your sin. Your hands are full of blood. You, you, you did it, David. You did it. Oh, what a relief. The truth was finally out. The secret was no longer hidden. He says in verse 5 of our text, Then then I acknowledged my sin to you, God. Then I acknowledged it. Yeah, right. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 5. In the accompanying psalm, Psalm 51, also written with regard to this sin with Bathsheba, he writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfeeling love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Blot out my transgressions. You know, by all rights, David should have been executed for these sins. Adultery, murder. Both of them were capital offenses in Israel, carrying the death penalty. There was no restitution for these sins. It was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That was the penalty. But he says to God, you do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. Brethren, repentance. Repentance is the biblical response to God awakening the soul to the guilt of sin. It opens the door for the sinner to run to God for forgiveness and cleansing. No one does this on their own. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 tells us that we should pray for the obstinate and the stubborn, writes Paul, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Acts 11 verse 18 calls it the repentance that's unto life. God uses the guilt of our sin to torment us, to disturb us like David, to the point where we will be willing to admit our sin. Oh, that God's spirit would disturb our sleep today so that we can admit our sin. That God would awaken our conscience and point us solely to Jesus and his blood. Any other attempt to deal with your guilt will end in futility. You will remain miserable and bitter and alone and eventually stone dead. without feeling, and without salvation. If your conscience bothers you 
you should rejoice. Why should you rejoice? It means you're not far from the kingdom of God. That's why. God is hounding you. He's coming after you. He's exposing your sin. That brings us then to the power of God's forgiveness. Forgiveness addresses real and imaginary sin and guilt, both. Just as we saw with guilt and guilt feelings, that guilt is firstly tied to the objective truth of real sin, so forgiveness is firstly objective and it's tied to real sin. Remember the backpack on Pilgrim's body as he trudged along in Pilgrim's progress? The backpack on his shoulders consisted of the weight of real sin. Wherever he went, he took his sin with him. Everywhere he went, he trudged along, inhibited and slowed down by the weight. He didn't just feel that he was guilty. He was guilty. And no amount of effort on his part, even listening to the good intentions of some fellow travelers, none of that changed anything for Pilgrim. In fact, the longer he bore the burden, the heavier it got. The pathway became more difficult to negotiate. The hills were steeper. Impediments, both physical and spiritual, tripped him up time and time again. Remember, he took some dangerous detours off the road that delayed his spiritual progress. And then God would discipline him and he would come back and get straightened out. Evangelist, the preacher of the gospel, warned him about straying from the path, but he did it anyway. And he learned the hard way that no one could help him with his burden of guilt but God, and in particular God the Son on the cross. There at Mount Calvary, something totally unexpected occurred. His backpack full of real sin rolled from his shoulders. Away it went, to down the hill, away and away and away, down, down, away leaving Christian free in body and free in spirit. Now how is it that the cross of the Savior had such an effect upon Christian? The Hebrew author of our scripture compares animal sacrifices with that of Jesus, and here's what he writes. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 9 verse 14. And John writes it this way, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
And brethren, it's this purification which indicates God has forgiven us. Jesus makes atonement for the sin. God does not ignore the sin. He deals with the sin. The wages of sin is death, says the Bible, so God paid the wages. He paid the wages to his son for every person whom the son represents. Well, who does the son represent? Jesus tells us in John, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, verse 37 and following. In other words, the blood of Jesus represents everyone who comes to him through repentance and faith. And if you come, if you come, Jesus has these words of assurance for you. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up in the last day. Resurrection unto eternal life. Think of the notorious characters in the Bible whose sins have been forgiven by Christ. David's sin, which of course we've been talking about this morning, is a Sins of adultery and murder. But there are many more. Oh, dozens and dozens. Zacchaeus was a little man, but he was a big thief. Read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you might be shocked to read in verse 5, Matthew 1 verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, Rahab. Ray, Rahab? Who was Rahab? She was a prostitute residing in the city of Jericho, whose worship switched to God from idols when Israel came in to possess the land. And the writer of Hebrews says of her, By faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Hebrews 11, verse 31, which means she was not disobedient. By faith, she trusted she would be saved. In the day of Jesus, the Pharisees hauled a half-naked woman before him, saying, Teacher! This woman was caught in the act of adultery. John 8, verse 4. In the act. Ooh, how embarrassing. How indicting. There wasn't any way for this woman to weasel her way out of this. She was caught in the act. Where was the guy, by the way? Why didn't they bring him too? A little prejudice going on here. But she was guilty as she could be, and the penalty was stoning. And so Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him have at it, you know. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. John 8, verse 7. One by one, they all left until there was no accuser left. 
And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. John 8, verse 11. Sexual sins play a heavy role in the guilt people experience in their lives. If they've engaged in premarital relationships or pornography, especially men, or any number of other immoral acts, the conscience under conviction can drive you to the brink of insanity. These people who are guilty of real sexual sins can be cleansed and forgiven by Christ. What about those people who have imagined themselves as sinners in these areas? I'm thinking if a person has been a victim of sexual sin, such as rape or incest, they're not guilty of sin, but they still feel guilty of sin. This is the dilemma, that people can be guilty of real sin, and they don't feel guilty. They go tripping through life merrily along. But then they're on the other side of the coin, there are people who have not sinned at all, but they feel guilty. Wow. Much of this has to do with how trained the conscience is in biblical knowledge. Those groomed in Christian teaching know, that is, the conscience has been enlightened to realize that God forbids sexual expression outside of marriage, but if they engage in such things, their conscience convicts them, and rightly so. The tragedy is those people who have been sinned against, the victims of sexual abuse. Why we have them in the Bible? Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, raped by Shechem, the Hivite, chapter 34 of Genesis, verse 2. Tamar, daughter of David, raped by her own half-brother, then discarded like a piece of garbage, 2 Samuel 13. Another Tamar, daughter-in-law of Judah, was raped by him because he thought she was a prostitute. She was alongside the road, and he thought her to be such. Genesis 38. And it became a scandal when she was found to be pregnant with his child. And God vindicated her, not him. Now, victims of these kinds of sins become angry and bitter and withdrawn and timid because they sense something of the shame that has been showered upon them by the wickedness of others. They feel used and abused. They feel guilty when they're not guilty. They feel dirty when they're not unclean. And they don't feel forgiven even when they are forgiven. It's a great tragedy. So what's the answer to people like that? What's the answer to sins like that? It's this. Truth first. Feeling second. Always put truth first. How does God want us to live in a world that is full of wickedness and sin, much of which are truly guilt, of, uh, which are truly guilty of though 
we are our own actions. That's real guilt for real sin. But secondly, also, what if you're not guilty? Because of the action of others perpetrated against you. But you still feel guilty. The solution for both is the same. It doesn't matter if you are guilty of breaking God's law and your conscience condemns you as guilty. Or if you are not guilty but you were a victim of someone else's sin but you still feel guilty because of that experience. Here's the answer. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Well, crucifixion, as you know, was a Roman form of execution. It was reserved for the worst kind of criminals, guilty of the worst crimes. The law of God, however, stands above any indictment that could be meted out by Rome, and it declares... If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, I'm reading scripture, and his body is put on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him the same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22. The curse of God here indicates something worse than death. A criminal is put to death for a capital offense, but after he's stoned to death, he's hung on a tree. Now, he's already dead. The sentence for his crime has been carried out, but the display on the tree shows that he's under God's curse. And the curse is worse than the physical death. It is a penalty beyond the stoning. It is to be thrown into the abyss of God's lake of fire. The second death. The death of the soul separated from the forgiveness of God. And God did not want a cursed person to pollute the land. Saul says to us, Christ redeemed us. That as he bought our freedom from execution... Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How did he do that? It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13 So, when Jesus was nailed to that Roman cross, he took the sin, yes, but he also took our guilt. And he also took the curse of God upon himself. He died physically, but he also 
paid the ultimate price of the second death, experiencing the curse, the abandonment of God. He died for the sin itself, but also for the consequences of the sin. What's that? The shame of the sin, the hurt the sin causes, the guilty conscience that disturbs our peace, the wrath of God for breaking his law. He did it all on the Nothing you ever did, nothing you ever did, nothing done to you regards sins is on your record. Because when God looks at your record, it's clean. You're forgiven. As Paul said of himself, I have been crucified with Christ. True of you, too, if you're a Christian this morning. Sinful you is dead. Dirty you is clean. Guilty you is exonerated. It is just as though the Romans had nailed you to the cross and executed you. And figuratively, they did. Because Jesus is the stand-in substitute for all who repent and believe. Do you believe that this actually happened? Do you accept that this was an actual historical event with spiritual outcomes for you? Here's where your faith must come alive. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. You say, but I still, I don't know, I still feel guilty. I don't feel forgiven. We must look at the reality, not our feelings. Truth first, then feelings. Faith or trust in thus saith the Lord is important regardless of the doubts that God could love you and wipe the slate clean. Christianity is the only religion in the world which says Christ God's Son has done it all. Do you believe it? Do you rest your hope on Him? All the other religions of the world say you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to pray this way, you got to give this much money, got to attend this church, you got to go to this synagogue, you got to, 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 in order to appease, to appease, to appease, to appease God. Christianity says, no, no, no. All the appeasement has been done by Christ and his impeccable sacrifice. Now there's one more thing as we close, and that is this, that Satan is the enemy of our souls, but he is the promoter of doubt and lying accusations. 
Most of us would acknowledge that we get ourselves into trouble with sin because Satan lures us, using the lusts of our flesh to be sure, to entice us to sin. We see him as the tempter. We believe that he is that. But you know, he's more than that. Beyond the work of tempting us to sin, Satan's primary work against believers is not tempting, it's accuser. He is called, I'm reading scripture now, he is called the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night. Revelation 12 verse 10. The Greek word here is two words put together. Kata, meaning against, and another Greek word, gorgeo, a complaint. So you put them together, a complaint against. A complaint against. The interesting part of this word is that it is a judicial word that's used in judicial hearings. A court scene where formal charges are brought before a judge. So, Satan comes before God, the judge of the universe, and he files formal complaints against you and against me. And he does this day and night. It's like, hey, give it a rest, huh? But he doesn't give it a rest. Day and night. Formal complaints. He accuses you of sin. Guess what? You are a sinner. Accuses me of sin. Guess what? I'm a sinner. He magnifies your guilt. And you feel the weight of that guilt. He condemns you to die, and you deserve to die. He paints the picture black as coal, and the portrait is accurate. Oh, for once the liar tells the truth. Oh, but not the whole truth. So help him God. (laughs) No. There's a lie in disguise. The most important part of the story, he leaves out. Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to this? Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, wait a minute here. If God be for us, if the judge is for us and you're standing before his tribunal, hmm, who can be against us? He goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
sweeping statement. He goes on. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, he's not saying that nobody will bring charges. Satan, he has just said, does this all the time. He's the accuser of their brethren, so he's bringing charges. The point is, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen and make them stick? Charge away. Condemn away. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who has been raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Mm. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How about trouble or hardship or persecution? Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, says Paul. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, Neither angels nor the demons. Hmm. Neither the present nor the future nor any power. Neither in height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it isn't for lack of trying <laughs> that the accuser comes against us. But he's saying that if we're loved by God in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate us from that love. One of the reasons behind Satan's accusations is to separate, to exonerate rather himself as the rebel kicked out of heaven. Think about that. And to paralyze you from living a joyous and victorious Christian life for Christ. And he does this by making you feel guilty for sin, whether it's real sin or imaginary sin, from which you have been totally and forever forgiven. That's fact, not feeling. And he does that to make you waver in your faith, to doubt the love of God, and most definitely doubt the power of God to save the likes of you. That's what the accuser of the brethren does. But the scripture says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they, the brethren, 
overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows what? What does he know? He knows his time is short. That's what he knows. Revelation 12. He doesn't know what's going to happen to you. He doesn't know what your faith will produce. He knows his time will be short. So the conclusion is this. If Jesus shed his blood, if that's your testimony, that he shed it for you, if it's what you're trusting in to deal with your sin, God has forgiven you. And no accusation can stand. Live your life in the glory of the fact that your feelings will catch up eventually with what, you, what is truth. So facts first, feelings second. We fight Satan with God's word, and he can't stand God's word. We can tell Satan, flee from me, and he must flee because we're a child. We sing in one of our hymns, I'm a child of the king. Don't you know you're a child of the king this morning? If you know Christ, you are. And he's built a hedge around you. And you're brought into the fold. And you're preserved and protected. You're in the sheepfold. And guess who's the door of the sheepfold? It's Christ. And nothing gets past him to get to you. And you can't get out and get in trouble where you're lost. God is a sanctuary for you. And it's in the person of our great Savior. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word. Please help us to see it, appreciate it. The accuser of the brethren is alive and active, but his day, his day is doomed. The scripture says that he knows that his time is short. And I, that's stated, of course, in reference to all of eternity. Compared to eternity, his time is short. It's just a drop in the bucket. The day is coming when his influence will be null and void. And the scripture describes him in the revelation as being thrown into the abyss, into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night, never again to raise his ugly head and to bring havoc upon your people. Now, if we know Christ today, if we're really trusting in you, we are forgiven, we're cleansed of our sin, we're secure, we're not saved today, lost tomorrow, none of that crazy business. We're saved today because the Savior is the same today, yesterday, and forever. It all depends on him, not us. Bless these truths to our hearts. May we stand up against the accuser. May we do as Paul says, resist the devil and he will flee from us. He can't stand the word of God. He can't stand 
what God has determined for his people, those whom he loves. I pray that we'll really grasp that today and praise you in his holy name. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal. Number 336. This hymn is often used as a... Um, what they call invitation hymns to um, evangelistic services. But I like to think of it as a reminder that whatever our sin is, whenever that is, we have a refuge. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't have to be the day that you initially came and sought forgiveness in Christ. It can be, as it is with me and others, years and years, where we sin daily, weekly, monthly, and we come and confess our sins to Christ, knowing that he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So let's stand as we sing. Number 336 in the Bible.
There will be no evening service tonight, so I just give you that to, uh, up front. Uh, I have to do dialysis uh, with this kidney problem, and that's a five-hour thing for me every day. So I will be tied up with that this afternoon. So I hope you'll bear with me. I hope to get past um, this dialysis business eventually. Uh, I'm waiting for a kidney transplant, and when that comes through, they will transplant me with a kidney, and hopefully that'll end my dialysis days. Uh, so anyway, it's something to pray about. I would like your prayers about that. And uh, in the meantime, you saw Jared set this up today, but I'm looking for a, a small table or something to go here that I, I'll be able to sit because I'm pretty spent by the time I'm done preaching standing. So uh, I'll be able to sit like Charles Stanley does on TV and uh, share the word of God with you that way and continuing on. So covet your prayers. Please pray for those that are sick. And thank you. We're dismissed. desk was added. What if we found something just to support this so he could sit underneath it the desk would stay the same? I'm going to grab uh, Doug with that. Why don't you grab Ed? Yeah. This better be important. You